Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the book of Philippians. In this book, Paul calls the church in Philippi to live lives that reflect Christ, even in times of persecution. Remembering this, to live as Christ, to die as gain. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Secondly, I want you to note what Paul doesn't do, and it's right here. He doesn't take sides in the matter. He's not going to do it anywhere in this passage. He's not going to take sides in the matter, not at all. You know, when you get too far down in the weeds, and that's the problem with trying to get all the details that we think we need to get in order to help people, the more details you get, the harder it is going to be for you to remain impartial. It just is. One thing I've learned when there's two parties that are fighting, I never listen to one without the other present. I've learned to do that, and I would advise you the same. But I know this person, and they're so solid. Trust me, there's always two sides to the story. I used to have a, a commander in the Army used to say this, and he was so right. He always said, remember this. I think I was a, a major at the time. He said, remember this, Major. The first report from the battlefield is always a lie. There's always more to the story, and you got to get more in to find out. You start talking to one person, no matter how much you respect them, no matter what you know about them, you're not going to know the truth until you get both together. And even there, how far you go down in the weeds is going to determine how impartial you're going to remain. And the further down you go, it's going to be human tendency to begin to side with somebody. And once you do that, it's lost, you see. You've lost it. You may as well send them to somebody else to talk to because now you're as engaged as they are emotionally. And that can't happen. So Paul stays out of it. He stays out of it. He just says, look, I just, I beg them to be of the same mind. And he's going to tell them what to do, tell this church what to do. And third, he takes them to the Lord's way of thinking about things. He challenges them to stop and consider what? The mind of the Lord. By saying to them, be of the same mind in the Lord means that he's challenging them to be thinking about what is the mind of the Lord. If I'm going to have the mind of the Lord, don't I need to know what it is? So if I look at somebody and they're in conflict and I say to them, I'll tell you what, be of the same mind of the Lord, I've just given them a homework assignment, haven't I? And what happens is they begin to try to sort out what the mind of the Lord is. Guess where it takes their mind? Off of what they're in right now and begins to lift it to high places where they can begin to discover God's heart in the matter. And I'm just telling you, once you discover God's heart, it's hard to remain in the same place. If you're a believer, it's really hard to remain in the same place because God begins to etch away at that hard heart that's become hard in that conflict and begins whittling away at it with his word, with his will. And it's really hard for us to stay the course of where we are. He just breaks it down. It's a solution. It's a solution. It's to think about, and now here's, I think, where the connection is to what we've been talking about over the last few weeks. This is all about grace. Because if they really begin to come in line with God's heart in the matter, his mind for things, his is a mind of grace. And now all of a sudden, Sincte and Yudia are being reminded of everything that Paul has just talked about in regard to grace, in regard to God's grace. And now he's saying, apply that here. That's the heart and the mind of the Lord. His is one of grace in dealing with people. 
It's the point that Jesus was trying to make with his disciples when he talked to them and to the crowds about how we're to relate to one another. Listen, Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. Matthew 6, 14 says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your, whole, will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, some read that passage and they think what Jesus is saying is that you can't be saved if you don't forgive people. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that if you are saved, you will forgive them. And if you don't, there will be that sense in your heart of, well, how is God forgiving this in mind when I'm doing it? And that condemnation that comes from our own hearts begins to creep back in. Do you understand? And we have that sense that God hasn't forgiven us. We can't move on until this goes. You see, we always think, we make the mistake of thinking that when we don't forgive somebody that we're doing something to them that they deserve. But the only one, and you've heard me say this so many times because it's just so true, but the only one that's really suffering is you. They go on with their lives. Look at those people that you harbor unforgiveness against. Do you think they sit there and think, oh my, they don't forgive me from 20 years ago? They don't even, they're going to go on with their lives. But you're the one in bondage. You're the one in prison. You're the one whose relationship is being stumbled with the Lord. I know because I've been there too. Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter's dialogue with Jesus. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Is he up to seven times? You see, Peter, when he comes with this question, it's, it's not really a question of curiosity. It's a question of the heart. And what Peter is basically saying is, you know what? We shouldn't have to forgive all the time. So what's the limit? That's the way we think. What's the limit? What's the point at which I don't forgive? What is it that's big enough that people can do to me that they don't deserve that forgiveness? That's the way we think. But Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's, he's not saying, Peter, multiply it out 490 times. But even if it was that for the same person, he probably would never get there. Okay, because if he had to do it that many times, Peter's heart probably wouldn't allow him to. Jesus' point is making is that ad infinitum, just keep forgiving, keep forgiving. But he makes it even clearer in verse 23 when he says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him his debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Do you get it? He forgives the servant his debt, who then doesn't turn around and forgive his servant that debt, 
And in the process, the master says, fine, go to the torturers. How many Christians today have been delivered over to the torturer <laughs> in their own hearts? Because of unforgiveness. They're tortured by it. They're tortured by it. But they think it's the other person that's torturing them because of what they've done, when in reality, it's themselves that's the cause of the torture in their hearts. Got to let it go. Got to let it go. And the way to let it go is given to us right here. It's to remember. And that was the point Jesus is making to, to Peter's remark. It's all connected. He's trying to say, Peter, 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 you don't understand this yet, but you're about to see the greatest debt ever paid off in your life. And it's in your life. And I'm going to do it. If you understood what I was about to do, if you understood what I will do, if you understood what I'm doing, that question wouldn't even come up. How many times or what level is forgiveness? because you would be reminded of what I've done. And that's the solution. That's why Paul's saying to Sincte and Eudia, get your eyes on the Lord. Get your eyes on him. Have the same mind in him. To have that mind is to understand what Jesus has done for you and for me. And once we begin to understand that, oh, how we can show grace to others. It doesn't mean there won't be conflict. It doesn't mean there won't be wrong rubs. But it does mean the outcomes of those will be far different than they would be otherwise. Having the mind of the Lord. Well, let's go on. We're almost done this morning. But he said in verse 3, And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul is, he's in distress for these ladies. He's not just in distress because of what it's doing for the church. He's in distress for them personally. He knows what true servants these women are. He, he says it. I your true companions help these women who labored with me in the gospel. These are not some fly-by-night women who just kind of popped into the church and created a disturbance. These are true servants. And let me tell you this. The majority of the conflicts that I've seen between believers aren't from, we used to use an army term, strap hangers, people on the outside. They're people who are ingrained in ministry. They're people who are real servants. They have servants' hearts. They love the Lord. They want to do what's right for the Lord. They want to see his kingdom advance. But oftentimes, that's where the conflict comes. Of course it would. Why would we expect it wouldn't? Because the enemy plays that card. Because he wants to disrupt them. Because if he can disrupt them, he disrupts their service for the Lord. He disrupts their witness for the Lord that they've established. He makes them look like jokes. And then when it is solved, then they feel so bad they can't serve anymore because in their hearts, they're still condemning themselves, you see. He's not. They are. Paul's distressed. He knows what it's going to do. So in light of that deep concern, not only is he writing to say, tell them this on my behalf, but he's saying, you guys get involved and help solve this. Don't sit there as a church and let this go down. Get involved. Get it solved. Get it fixed, you see. But get it fixed the right way. This is something that we as believers should want to do for each other. We should want to help our brothers and sisters with this or with anything that would hinder their walk, witness, or work for the Lord. We should. I mean, Galatians 6, 1 through 4 says this. Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. And so here, Paul, in writing to the Galatians, he's saying, hey, look, we should want to carry one another's burdens. We should want to restore those who are downtrodden, who are in situations like this. We should do it. But first of all, we need to remember who we are before we try. 
remember who we are. So we don't go into that thinking we've got it all figured out because we don't. And we've been there too. But then as you go, go, go to relieve that burden. And, and I think that's an important part in the body of Christ. And I think the first place we begin is in prayer. We pray for them. We observe. We watch. Long before we ever talk to them, we're lifting them up before the Lord. And let me tell you what, I don't know about you, I don't wait till I get the flu to go get a vaccination. I get the vaccination before the flu comes. And my point is this, you guys need to be praying for each other. See, this is still tied to this concept of the local body and, and the grace that Christ has given us to come together like this. We have a responsibility to one another. We don't wait till the fights break out. We need to be praying now that God would keep us from that, that he would protect us from the conflict, and that if conflict arises, that it's nothing more but a quick fire that burns itself out. That, that's the best thing you can do. But if it isn't solved by that, then there may be the next step of getting involved, you see. I have to tell you that, you know, in the years that I participate in different ministry things, I mean, I could just go back. I've seen it all the time, but I could go back to even to our trip to Belize. There was stress that, that various members went through when they were there. I mean, there were some of us ready to go home on day two and three, ready to go home and pack up, and, and the stress that was building and all kinds of stuff. And I was so blessed to watch how that group of people ministered to each other. How blessed I was to watch different people stepping up and saying, I'll talk to them. I have, I have a report. I'll talk to I'll take care of that one. And they would do it, and they'd pray with him, and they'd work with him, and God just, he just did miraculous things through it. Taught people, restored people, just encouraged people, and that's how it should be in the body of Christ. But here's the question. How do we do it? How do we get involved? We already know we can't get too far down in the weeds. We shouldn't be going where we shouldn't go. So how do we do it? Well, I think the guidance is given to us. We need to take people to the Word of God, and we need to show them. We need to show them. We don't need to offer our solutions. We don't have to give them our advice and counsel. What we need to do is take them to the Word of God and show them how God says that their conflict is to be resolved. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Why don't you flip over there real quick? Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. I know I said we're almost done, but, you know, that's pastors almost done. That's not. We operate on a different clock than you do. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. Matthew 5, 23 says this. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Somebody you see conflict or somebody comes to you that's in conflict and they're telling you about it should be looking at them right away and saying, so have you gone to them? You're here worshiping Jesus, but have you gone to them? Why don't you lay down the worship that you've brought for him here for now, and you go talk to them. You go see them. You go see them and, and maybe tell them what's happened and how you're feeling about this. Go talk to them. Because honestly, you're really not leaving your gift at the altar you're offering your gift of worship by doing that because Jesus has asked that of you. And so if you demonstrate that obedience, then you're really worshiping Jesus through that. And you know what? Jesus will honor a sincere gift that's given to him. He'll honor that. And so if you're honoring him by, by making that sacrifice, and it is a sacrifice to go to people who are offended by you or that you're offended by, it's a real sacrifice to do it, isn't it? Because it's not easy to say, let's talk. We need, yeah, there's a difference there. I didn't mean it like that. Let's talk. We need to talk. 
no, just say we got we need to clear the air. We need to, I want to clear the air. Maybe you don't, but I do. And that's a great way to say it. I want to clear the air. See, the onus is on me, not on you. I'm not expecting anything of you. I'm doing my part. I'm coming to you because I'm going to remain in obedience. And don't say this to them if they don't. You choose to stay in disobedience to God's word, that's up to you. Don't do that. It will not help things. But you can know that as you do that, and you don't have to worry about them. Because who are you responsible to the Lord for? For them? You see, that's where unforgiveness comes from. Because we're holding them accountable on behalf of the Lord. And we can't do that. You're accountable before the Lord. And you can only do what you can do. That's why people say, you know what? I I have sought forgiveness and reconciliation with people, and they won't give it to me. And then I look and say, have you sincerely sought it? What have you done? How have you done that? And when they lay that down, I say, well, then you've done what you can do. Now let them go. They're in God's hands. Let them go. There's nothing more you can do. If they create a disturbance through what they're doing, then we'll move to the next steps of the process. But the reality is you first have done your part. You can have peace before God because you've done this, because he's asked that of you. You've made your sacrifice. Now go worship him. So we take them to the word of God, and we show them a passage like this. Now flip over to Matthew 18, because it's similar. It's saying basically the same thing, but with more detail. Matthew 18, verse 15. Matthew 18 and verse 15. Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him in public. Does it say that? No. Alone. If he hears you, you've gained a brother. Step one, go talk to him. Have you talked? You shouldn't, you shouldn't even entertain something from somebody else who comes to you to be the peacemaker if they haven't already begun to talk to them. Now, you can be the peacemaker initially by looking at them saying, before we even take this any further, you need to go and see them. If you haven't done that, you need to go and talk to them or her. You need to sit down with them. You need to talk to them about what's going on. You need to see them. You need to talk to them alone. And verse 16, but if he will not hear, take with, with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now, that's the second step if they're not receiving it. And, and let me say this to you. I, I know, and I've mentioned before, but I know that sometimes in Christianity, we make this a checklist, which means, okay, I got my checklist and I did that, did that one. That didn't work, so now I go to two. I would argue that maybe before you go to two, this is a more of a process than it is a checklist. Maybe you go to them, they don't receive it, you pray. Go back and you pray. Don't say a word. Just pray. First of all, pray about your own situation. Pray about your own emotions about the thing. Get things settled in your heart. Maybe they weren't receiving it because God wasn't letting them receive it because your heart was still wrong. Even though you may be right in the situation, maybe your heart is wrong in it. You can be right and, un- and hold unforgiveness for them because they're accusing you of something you're right on and holding it against you. But by your very unforgiveness of them, you've made yourself wrong, you see. So focus your prayers on you. Focus your prayers on the mind of Christ. Focus your prayers on the things that Jesus would do. Ask him to bring his grace to the situation. And then go back. But after a while, if you see this is just not working, they're not receiving, then he says, okay, well, take two or three with you. Now, the point isn't to bring your posse with you to get them, right? The point when he says this is this this is right out of the law by the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word, not just their word, but your words maybe. See, we want to take people who are on our side, so we're going to take them and we're going to make our point. But what he's saying here, what Jesus is saying is you need to take impartial witnesses that can come and can establish the words of both parties as they're talking through. Now, there is a little bit of this sorting through here that's taking place. But again, I don't think Jesus' point is it needs to go all that deep. 
I think it's just to say, hey, why are we, why are we at war with one another? Why are we fighting? Long enough to say, let's get away from this and get to Jesus. And then he goes on to the third step. He says, verse 17, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So third step, he says, look, again, process, process. There may be a process in this. But if that's not working out, then the next thing we need to do is take it to the church. Not meaning from the pulpit, but meaning to the church leadership. So the church leadership, and, and here's where we get a verse wrong. Verse 18, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Now, we quote that verse from verse 18 on, and we separate it from this passage, and we talk about our prayer meetings. Okay, well, only a couple of us showed up today. What Where two or three are gathered, you know? That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the authority of the church leadership to pass that final judgment as to how this person should be treated. And, and, and in the process, if the church leadership is trying to work through this process, too, with, this, with these people, and, and one's heart is too hard, they're not bending, they don't want the mind of the Lord, they don't want the grace of the Lord to be played out, well, the church might be looking and saying at that point, you know what, well, we have no recourse but to look at you as kind of as an unbeliever because that really sort of reeks of being unsaved. Because you're like that guy in the parable that Jesus shared. You've been forgiven much, and you're saying, I'm not going to forgive. That what they owe me is more important than what I owe Jesus. Now, he's not saying you're declaring them an unbeliever. It's just saying you're treating them as that. You're trying to win them back to Jesus so that in the process, they can come to that place of grace again in their own hearts because they clearly don't understand it. Get them back to him because as they get them back to him, then the grace can begin to work itself out and then the thing gets resolved, you see. So what are we to do when they come and our part in it? Take them to the Word of God. Take them to these passages. Don't take them to all the psychobabble that you can read in books. Take them to the Word of God and let him solve it. And that's your part. Your part isn't all the details. Your part is simply, what's the mind of the Lord? Let's look at the mind of the Lord on this. And then finally, Paul says this, verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. This is more than a random statement than it was when Paul made it in the statement in Philippians 3.1. There he made the statement to make the point that rejoicing in the Lord will only come when we live our lives in light of the fullness of God's grace. And here what he is saying is that we will only rejoice in the Lord. We will only rejoice in the Lord when we have the mind of the Lord when we're in his grace in our treatment of one another, then we can rejoice in the Lord. And really what he's saying is rejoice in the Lord always. Keep your eyes on him, because if you have your eyes on him, trust me, the conflicts will go down, even in the family. They'll go down because you're looking at something that's bigger than everything that's happening. And suddenly all of the stuff in the family takes on its perspective, its right perspective. It isn't that big a deal. I like how Spurgeon said it. He said, I am glad that we do not know what the quarrel was about. I'm usually thankful for ignorance on such subjects. But as a cure for disagreements, the apostle says, rejoice in the Lord always. People who are very happy, especially those who are very happy in the Lord, are not apt either to give offense or to take offense. Their minds are so sweetly occupied with higher things that they are not easily distracted by the little troubles which naturally arise among such imperfect creatures as we are. Joy in the Lord is the cure for all discord. Isn't that wisdom? It's the wisdom of the word. It's the wisdom of the Lord. And then he says, finally, in verse 5, 
Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Gentleness, graciousness, he means. Graciousness. Let your graciousness, your forbearance, your patience be known to all men, Paul is saying. In other words, how you deal with these women. Teach them by the way you deal with them how they need to deal with each other in grace, in patience, keeping their eyes on Jesus and worshiping him alone. Boy, when we do that, just we're back to the message from the last week's. Let Jesus absorb your life. Let him consume you. Let your thoughts, the attitudes of your hearts be so consumed by him because I promise you when they are, what will consume you is his grace will consume you. And as his grace consumes you, the stuff that irritates you, it's not going to hit as much. It's not going to harbor as much in your heart. It won't stay there very long because grace will push it right out the door. And you know what? Your relationships with others will be stronger. And even when they don't want to be in relationship, your relationship will be right with the Lord because you've honored His grace. Amen? Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.